And welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fullerman. My guest this week is Steve Barton. Now Steve was the lead singer of the band Translator. They had the hit Everywhere That I'm Not back in the 80s. In fact, they released four albums in the mid-80s in four years. Eventually they broke up in late 86. They've gotten back together here and there over the, over the years. They released an album, I think, in 2012. But Steve released a few solo albums starting in 1999. His latest, Love and Destruction, was released last month. It's pretty good. Check it out. We talk about that album, what he did during the pandemic, uh, his time in Translator, and why Everywhere That I'm Not, which the song that pretty much everyone knows wasn't as big as it really should have been. Uh, Steve, really nice guy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. So, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So before we kind of like reminisce, uh, talk about your latest album that just came out, Love and Destruction. Uh, really, really enjoy it. Um, was this kind of like a pandemic album for you or would you have plans to make this before all this shit happened? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, most of the record was just finished right before the pandemic. Okay. And um, uh, it's funny you'd ask that because there's a, I have actually two other two subsequent albums that I've been working on during the pandemic that okay. one finished one is almost finished. Right. So, um, you know, I've been sort of sequestered in my studio, so it's been pretty productive. Yeah. But yeah, this was mostly finished. The first song on the record is called um, Freedom's Not Free. Right. And that song is was written during the pandemic. The last song written for the record.
you didn't feel like making this a triple album again? You, you got that out of your system? <laughs> yeah, I got it out of the system, even though I have three records essentially done. Right. But, <laughs> yeah. No, I knew going in, I wanted this to be a single record with um, with the band. Right. Because on the, the triple album, uh, Tall Tales and Alibis from a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, most of the songs don't have a band. Okay. It, you know, there's one, one of the three records did have a band, but most of them was me with a few overdubs here and there, which I really like. But I knew I wanted to make a record with a band for this one. Yeah. And you have a little bit of a translator uh, reunion on this album, which is really good. Yeah. When, yeah. When you make like a solo album, like, is it kind of difficult to kind of separate like a Steve Barton album from like a translator album? Not really. No. I mean, I think it's a, a totally different um, thing. Well, first of all, with, with tra- if it's a translator record, let's say it's, it's very, very um, collaborative. Okay. Because there's four people and right, yeah. also two writers, and you know it 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 changes in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and with a solo record, it's still collaborative, but at the end of the day, it's you know me going. No, I think I want it to go like this. Right. You know, so, yeah. which you know I use Dave Chef on drums. Dave is a drummer, of course, and translator as well. Right. And he's played drums on almost all my solo records. And with with Dave, we have a shorthand. It's, I don't have to. Yeah anything i'll play a song and he'll know almost right. always exactly what to do right uh, that's great now a couple songs on the new album uh last for best which I, I really love it has like kind of like a beetle you know 60s british uh element to it which yeah. is a really really fantastic song and then i guess the single never gonna last is also um one of my favorites as well Those tracks were, were mixed by Ed Stasium, 
who uh, okay right produced a couple of translator records of course produced the ramones and yeah living color and all the stuff recording engineer on the first couple of talking heads albums right yeah so obviously it was easy to get him back for this right yeah well we're we're good friends yeah and so i asked him if he would do a couple of songs and he graciously said yes right okay so like when you have like obviously the whole record industry is so different now compared to like when you came out with translator like what's your goal for this album well first for people to hear it right um and i wanted when the pandemic's over i want to tour behind it okay and um whether that's me and dave going out as a duo at first or right. doing solo shows or putting a little combo together or something right. but um, I definitely want to tour. I didn't get to tour behind the triple album. I just yeah. did a few dates, but there right. wasn't a tour. Yeah. Um, so with this one, and there are plans September, October, hopefully to go to um, the UK, but we'll, okay. we'll who knows what the yeah. world's going to be like. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. You know, if not this year, then certainly, you know, next year when people can travel again. Right. So itching to play live like most people are. I'm sure. Yeah. That's yeah. part of the goal with this record. And it was also just to, to um to get these songs recorded and and get them out into the world right and so that part's happened yeah and i want to spread the word oh that's great yeah well hopefully the feedback's great because it's a really good album so. thank you really appreciate it yeah so kind of you know going back you know a few years so like musically i mean like you were in a band when you're 11 years old i mean that that's like fantastic um how did you get involved in music even before then well yeah, my first band was, I was 11. I was, I, I had taken piano lessons as a kid and then right. drum lessons. And so I had a little drum set. <clears throat> and well, the very first band I was ever in was these, these kids who lived across the street from, you know, where I lived. Right. And put a band together to lip sync songs because nobody knew how to play. Yeah. I remember doing like All Day and All the Night by the Kinks and stuff like that. Right. So we need a drummer. And I said, oh because I wanted to play guitar. Right. I said, oh, well, I'll play drums. <clears throat> so I think my parents got me a snare drum somehow. Okay. We were lip syncing. I wish there was video of this, I'm sure. Right. Was, but there isn't. <laughs> um, then that, of course, faded away. Yeah. But I had the bug. And so my parents, for Christmas one year, got me a drum set, this really cool red sparkle mm -hmm. drum kit. And... Um, <clears throat> um, I, uh, with a friend of mine who played guitar, we started a band that was called The Present Tense. And it was me and him and this other kid who played um, uh, tambourine, kind of like Davy Jones. Right. And, um, and then that group was together for a while. And we recorded a single that actually never came out, but it was produced by Mike Kerb, who ended up being a big record producer in, in Nashville. I think he did a lot of stuff. But he said, wait, how old are these kids? And we were mm -hmm. like 11. Yeah. And there was two songs that we'd written. I, I co-wrote both of these songs. One was called Lost. Right. And one was called Illusions. And um, they were cool, dark, little weird songs. And yeah. and then uh, the 11-year-olds were writing. And then that group broke up. And I was sort of like, well, now what do I do? I'm suddenly <laughs> like, you know, that has been a 12. You know, exactly. <laughs> um, when I was 14, it's like the thumbnail sketch of you know, right. my illustrious life. Yeah. But when I was 14, um, I had, a, I'd started writing songs when the present tense broke up. Okay. Like, I had a little tape recorder, real-to-real um, -real tape recorder in my bedroom and I'd write these little songs. Mm -hmm. And then um, my parents, I guess, gave a copy of the tape to a friend of theirs who had an incredibly great name. His name right. was Bill Rainbolt, which is just oh, a great nice. Yeah. And so, it, so he, um, he took it to a friend of his, who took it to a friend of his, and this this publishing company called ABC Dunhill signed me as a songwriter when I was 14. Wow. And so I had a publishing deal when I was 14 till I was 16, and they gave me $25 a week as an advance on these, which was a small fortune for a Yeah, for a, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and um, my parents had to go with me when I signed the contract because I was a minor. Yeah. And um, then that, after 16, that ended. Then I graduated from high school, and I went to France to go to school after that for a little bit and yeah. there's another love of mine is speaking French and then even when I was in France I realized you know I want to play music because literally it was am I going to be a translator literally right. or uh, yeah. play music and was, I was weighing those two things right I remember sort of 
looking in a music store window in Grenoble in France where I was going to school and all the guitars hanging and stuff. And it was just like, oh, that's, that's what I want to do. It's like a movie. Right. And then I came back and I started playing, you know, whoever I could play with. I had a, I was playing guitar at that point. Yeah. And I had my Les Paul, which I still have, and I still played in translator and I still play. Yeah. And um, same one. And um, I played the first sort of real gig I had besides sort of one-off little things was with this yeah. R&B singer whose name was Ella Woods. She was, she was good. And we did a USO tour of Germany, all okay. these bases in Germany for a number of weeks and also all over the States. And that was cool because I was playing music I've never was, would have played before. Right. A lot of R&B stuff and really cool mm. um, stuff. And she called her backup band Life. So it would be, ladies and gentlemen, Ella Woods and Life. And then <laughs> we'd come out and we would do our little set first before she right. came out. And my, my big song with that was um, Just the Way You Are by Billy Joel. That was my big solo number. Right. And, uh, and uh, we did the Earth, Wind, and Fire version of Got to Get You Into My Life, and, you know, stuff like that. It was, yeah. it was cool. And then um, really cool, like funky players, like really into Stevie Wonder. I learned a lot with those, with those, those guys. Um, then that ended. And there, was, there used to be a thing in, in Los Angeles where I was living called the Musician's Contact Service, which was essentially pre-internet, okay. pre-cell phone. It was like a big, you go to this place on Sunset Boulevard and it was a big book. Go, oh, I needed someone for a wedding on Tuesday. Oh, okay. Or I need this, yeah. call this number. And so I, there was one, it was like Beatle cover band. So I thought, oh, well, I know all the Beatles songs. Right. I love the Beatles, you know? So I went to this office in Hollywood and the two producers, so they said, okay, we're putting together a show. You heard of Beatlemania? I said, yeah, that was a big show on Broadway at the time. Right. I said, Yeah. Well, we're doing, ours is called Beetle Fever. Same kind of idea. I said, okay, we need a George. Can yeah. you, I said, okay. He said, well, here, he gave me a guitar. I said, so I said, uh, okay. So I thought, George, you tried. So someone, I literally went, something in the way. And he goes, that's good. Okay, you're in. I said, okay, we have a gig on Wednesday or whatever it was. Yeah. And so <laughs> it was a good band. We did a number of shows playing like high schools around Southern California. And some of these were brand new high schools, which had totally state-of-the-art auditoriums. They right. were like small concert venues. Like, well, these people have some money. It was a yeah. different time. Right. And, uh, um, the drummer was not very good in this Beatle cover band. Yeah. And like, I remember we did, we were doing um, Ticket to Ride, I think. And it would be like, she's got a ticket. And he would suddenly throw in like uh, kind of jazz fusion yeah. fills. Be like, ticket to rent. <laughs> what on earth is going on here? Right. Well, Ringo's so boring. So I was like, right, okay. I, and so I got on the phone and I called Dave Chef, who was in LA. And I said, yeah. friends. And I said, look, this guy's not working. Do you, you want to, we're supposed to go to Japan. Uh, you, this guy can't be the drummer do you want right. to so he came to the rehearsal and i knew that he knew ringo like crazy yeah. and we both had the same love of the beatles and i said let's see if she loves you and we played it and everyone was like whoa what in the fuck just happened you know? yeah and so my line is that this other guy was really pete best exactly <laughs> they've got in the beetle fever band and we went to japan yeah. And, you know, th that was fun. But the, after a while, it's like, uh, yeah, I, I get it. It was yeah. incredibly good for my voice because because I was George, but the guy playing John, uh, you know, it, it just for, for whatever reason, he was more suited to be George. Right. Vocally and stuff. So we switched. So I, I did the John Lennon role, which meant I was, you know, belting out Twist and Shout every night, but also yeah. singing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and also subtle stuff. And right incredibly great training for what was going to come next which, which was translator right and dave and i it was coming back from tokyo where this band we like we're done with the beetle thing and we yeah. literally looked at each other and just said we just start our own band yeah and that's how translator started so you don't want to do like a wings cover band then right yeah we, we thought about <laughs> wings cover band and uh we no no yeah right <laughs> yeah how did you uh how did you meet dave you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about this the other day, and I think he remembers. I, I we were teenagers. I know right. that, 
And we had a mutual friend who um, introduced us. I think I was making some demos probably because I've been writing songs forever and going, and I had a friend who had a studio way back then. And um, I think he said, oh, you got to meet this guy, Dave. He's great. And I think he played on some early demos of mine and we, okay. we just, yeah. Right. That's good. Any of the, like the songs that you wrote when you had the, you know, songwriting contract, did they get published and? No, but it's funny. One of the songs on, I mentioned finishing up a couple of records of during lockdown. Huh. Um, one of the songs is a song that I started, that I wrote when I was about 11. Okay. Or maybe about 13, probably about 13. Cause it was after the present tense when I had okay. the publishing deal. And it, I wrote it on the piano back then, but I, changed it over to guitar for my current version and I added a new chorus because right. it was kind of going all over the place back then. But the verses are exactly what I had from back then. That's the only song that I've kept in all those years. There might be a couple of lines from a few songs right. that I liked, but most of the songs, no. Yeah. <laughs> I was learning. Right, but it was, it was good practice for what was gonna come. <laughs> it was good practice, yeah. yeah. So I'll tell you like how I got involved with Translator. Um, I went to college up in Buffalo, New York, and I was doing like sports updates for the, the radio station, the college radio station. And one of the shows that preceded my updates was kind of like, a, I guess this was even before now, how like, you know, Passive Alternative is, you know, big. This was like 1994. So it was like, you know, they were doing like 80s, like, you know, New Wave and, you know, like stuff like that. And uh they played everywhere than I'm not. And I hadn't heard that song probably for at that point, at least 10 years. Right. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is, you know, kind of brought back. I mean, I was at that time I was like 19 you know, years old. I'm like, oh, this is this is pretty good. And then you, know, you hear the song, you know, New York and Paris and Nova Scotia. I'm like, OK, it's they're a Canadian band. So it makes sense that the, we're playing it you know, near near, near the border. Turns yeah. out you're not at, at, at all. So how did that line get thrown in uh, everywhere that I'm not?
song sort of uh, okay. I it really quickly right because uh, i remember i had i thought i saw you out on the avenue then i thought i thought i heard you. Oh, oh what if it's all the senses it just sort of it yeah. all sort of filling in the the dots mm-hmm. by itself and then i wanted it to be i saw you in different places and i had with it new york new york but i'm not you're in tokyo but i'm not and then i don't know where nova scotia just like it was like <laughs> It's different, you know, because the first two are, you know, New York, Tokyo, Nova Scotia. So yeah. it, it keeps having more syllables, maybe. I don't know. It just sort of came out. I don't, there's no connection with Nova Scotia. I'm like, oh, well, my yeah. dad was there. You know, it was right. Like, yeah. Yeah. It was, it, yeah. It was just funny because it was like, all right, they're, they're Canadian band. And I was like big into, the, you know, Canadian, like 80s Canadian bands at, at that time. I'm like, okay, cool. Just chalk it up. So, you know, but that was even before like streaming. So you had to like find the album. Exactly. And you know, luckily they had a copy at, um, at the oh, radio station, so I just, I just, I just stole it. Nice. <laughs> at that point, you know, like, I'll, I'll make it to a cassette tape and I'll give it back at that at that point. So this way, I won't get you know fired from the station. But uh, yeah, but that album, Harpy and Trick, is 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 fantastic, and so many you know other good songs at, at that point. Um, how long did the guys take you to like make that album? It was pretty quick. Um, mm-hmm. The producer David Kahn had a really good idea of. We hired a mobile truck, the uh, Wally Hyder studio in San Francisco, and recorded most of the basic tracks of the record in our rehearsal studio in San Francisco. So we were super comfortable. You know, it wasn't like, okay, now you're in a completely foreign environment. Go, be incredible. It was, we were, oh, this is, we're just play and you'll record it. That's fantastic. Then we went to a real studio and did overdubs, but we had the basic vibe for the record pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. So you got signed, how long after you got signed did the album come out? Um, well, we had made a couple of demos with David Kahn, uh, one of which was Everywhere That I'm Not. Right. On that demo tape was Everywhere That I'm Not, Necessary Spinning and Everywhere. Okay. Um, and they were all the, they ended up being the final versions on the on the album. Right. Because we went in and tried to re-record them and just there was a magic that had happened. We were like, yeah. you know what, these demos are, I think they're the real thing. Right. And Howie Klein at 415 Records, this indie label there, um, which ended up becoming part of Columbia Records, um, heard heard the the songs getting played on KUSF, which was the college station in San Francisco, everywhere that I'm not was, and it was getting tons of requests, and not just from you know 19 year old kids in college, but yeah. from uh, um, as he used to say, like. You know, housewives would call and say play that song and, and he noticed that you know well that's a big audience I, I better go see these guys live so he went and saw us a few times right play at places like punk clubs even though we weren't really a punk band but right. that's what it was back then yeah. and um and he called us he said yeah you were a, a cross between talking heads and gang of four when he saw us which was kind of accurate back then right yeah. and um uh and signed us to four and five records pretty very quickly. And then they signed with Columbia. So the records came out with the Columbia label on them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Were you kind of, I mean, cause that album, that song, you know, the song is fantastic that it didn't take off like more in, in the country than it did. Yeah. It, it's funny. I think it's a, it, it, people think it's a bigger hit than maybe it was because right. every, and then, it, well, then that comes down to what is a hit. I mean, if it's, yeah just you know top of the charts that's one thing right. yeah but everybody knows that song yeah and you know we play shows if translator ever plays we play occasionally right um, people are singing along i always do it in my solo sets and people right. you know i i've seen people cry you know so yeah 
you know, yeah, it wasn't the number one record or anything, but mm -hmm. you know, it, it did touch people and, you know, right. and everybody knows it, even mm -hmm. though, even when it was a hit, we'd show yeah. up at places. Yeah. I remember playing in San Diego in California and we showed up for our sound check or whatever. And there was a little mm -hmm. sign in the box office window said tonight, translated with their song, everyone, but I am. It's like, oh. no, people no, constantly got the name wrong. Wow. That's fun. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, it's not that hard, but okay, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned San Diego because I had uh, Tony Ortiz, the former lead singer of the Monroe's on a, a couple a couple weeks ago. And like you guys, he had, they had, you know, What Do All the People Know? And I think everyone knows that song, but also that wasn't really a, sm a big hit. Yeah. All classics. And, you know, everyone loves that, you know, gets emotional when they hear that song too. So it's, yeah. it's just kind of funny how you know, these songs you think are bigger than what they really are. It brings into question, what is a hit? What does that mean? Right. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I, I feel great about it, so. Oh yeah, no, you should. It's it's a fantastic. Why it wasn't number one? You know, I don't know. It was a different yeah. time, and you know, right. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, your follow-up album is, I think, is still my favorite album. No, no time like now. Um, that was obviously you guys had four albums in like what four years, so you were churning out stuff yeah, fairly, yeah. fairly quickly. Was that like your guys' design or record company that you guys wanted to churn out well, so much? Stuff? A little bit of both, but our model was the Beatles, and so it was like right. You know, well, they were like two albums a year, make a movie, do yeah. tour, do TV. Do, you know, there was like, there was no off time. Exactly. So we were like, well, let's just put a put another record out. You know, yeah. I write all the time and, and right. Robert Darlington, the other writer was writing all the time. And it was like, let's just put another record out. This is great. Yeah. And, you know, with no time, like now we knew we wanted, we had been on tour a lot. Uh, before that record we played with, we toured with like Echo and the Bunny Men, and okay. I think maybe Gang of Four was with the first album. I don't remember, but we've been playing in big, bigger places, and we wanted kind of a bigger sound. Yeah. So there's a lot of echo and stuff on that record because right. we wanted it to be. Yeah, we wanted all our records to sound different. Right. No, that, that's good. You don't want to hear the same, you know, band put out the same album. You know, there's no reason to do that. Yeah, uh -huh. Exactly. Stale. Yeah, absolutely. Now, because you mentioned Gangle 4 and Echo and the Bunningham, 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 sorry. Uh, it's easier, I guess, to be on tour with bands similar to you. That's what you're not kind of fighting for the audience for their approval. They're already invested, right? Yeah. That said, we did a really great tour, one of our best tours with, with the B-52s, who you wouldn't think okay. yeah. in breath. But it was, and then it's a little like the Fillmore in the 60s, where it's a little different, you know, put disparate groups together mm -hmm. and, it, and it works out because they were, you know, much more kind of quirky and dancey and right. I love the B-52s, but they were yeah, like, too, yeah. they were like that. And, and the translator would come out and we were, you know, whatever we were, but it, it really worked well. And that right. was a, that was a fantastic tour and the audiences loved it. Loved right. it. Yeah. I, I saw them a couple years ago with Squeeze and you and really connect those two bands together but yeah it was a good mixture of, of, of the two mm -hmm. uh, absolutely but um i think even more than um everywhere that i'm not i think i i love you is my favorite song by you guys i am so glad you said that I can't hide 
full of favorite songs that I've written. Right. Um, I'm really glad you pointed that out because, and I can tell you that my idea with that song was I wanted to write a love song that I wouldn't be embarrassed to sing. That was my whole goal. Right. And I remember I was living in this dump, mm-hmm. in like literally a, uh, like a flop house almost. Right. I went through this sort of Charles Bukowski, you know, phase or something. And it was like this, <laughs> dicey neighborhood i loved every minute of it right and then writing songs for the third album and um <clears throat> a second album and i knew i wanted i knew i wanted to call it i love you i just want to come right out and say mm-hmm. i love you and i will say before that album came out i was in an elevator with one of the heads of columbia records at the time yeah and we were going up up the to their executive offices or whatever Right. And he said, I, I love the new I love the new album. I said, Oh great. He goes, I know what the single should be. And we knew we wanted it to be on alone. Right. Sort of up tempo, you know, mm-hmm. dance kind of record. Yeah. And he said, It should be I love you. And I was like, Whoa, oh no, no, yeah. it can't be I love it's gotta be a rock and roll record, man. Yeah. He said, Okay. That's one of those little moments, if I had that to do again, right, where I would say, You're the record company. I like everything. Whatever you guys think you can sell. No, it's for. fine. Yeah. I care. Well, I don't care. Sure. Great. Yeah. You know, but um, again, you don't know what happens if you go through a door you didn't of go course. through. Right. Matter. But um, but yeah, I really like that song. And I love the recording. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been I I may have put that on one of my wife's mixtapes, you know, years ago. <laughs> you know. I remember doing the, the solo at the end of that where the guitar, I don't know if you remember, but the guitar keeps coming up the neck and then at the end of the song it's that's as high as it can go. Yeah. Um, and we had finished the song and David Kahn, the producer said, yeah. we need a little solo for the, for the outbound. Right. And I was like, solo? No, no, just, it's just, okay. And I said, so I'm just 
so I'll do this. I just played the chord in different inversions all the way up the neck until it got us yeah. ended. Right. And, um, and I was like, oh, that's incredible. It's just very evocative and it was really cool. Right. Nice yeah. So was Unalone the only single release on that, on that album? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. It was, uh, we made a video for that and it was the only one that was released yeah. from that album. Okay. Did you guys enjoy making videos? Yeah, it was okay. Yeah, it was okay. I mean, we we weren't really a video band, you know, right. but it was um, it, it was it was it was fun. Yeah. You know, we, I liked the everywhere that I'm not video was really fun to do because it was right. that we were in one of the first promos for MTV. Oh, okay, it was like music is coming to television. Right, you know, <laughs> man, and yeah, and they showed a little bit of I think like a police video and. Um, flock of seagulls and us that everywhere that i'm <laughs> coming right. soon you know and um so and so that was exciting because yeah. it was all brand new and it was right. you know incredible and um i know with the unalone video we had met with this like experimental filmmaker who did uh the, do you know there was this group called the residents they okay. were kind of an experimental art band right he had all their videos and they were really weird yeah. you know but let's get that guy right and um so we made what we called uh what do we call it at the time uh ingmar bergman meets the three stooges that was <laughs> kind of our <laughs> yeah we conceit with that with that video so right. it was supposed to be like a comedy kind of video yeah. it was fun and then um we made another video for the third album for a, a song called come with me right where we went to india Okay. And uh, yeah, the the filmmaker was from India, and he said, you know, we can for the same budget, we can go to India and do this. And I said, we said, really? Okay, let's so, do it. Cool. So we yeah. went there. And then uh, there was not a there wasn't a video for the fourth album. Okay. So we made we made four videos. We made one called Sleeping Snakes from right. uh, Heartbeats and Triggers too. Yeah. Yeah, which I liked a lot. Yeah, not that's it. I remember the video too. Did the videos help you guys? Because I mean, obviously, MTV just came out. Did, did it like oh, yeah. help bring attention oh, yeah. to you guys? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, definitely helped. Right. Cool. So then the third album, you kind of—that's where you got it at Stasium. So how did how did that come about? Well, after the second album, <clears throat> we did a whole bunch of touring and uh, came back and thought, you know, we want to do something a little different. Yeah. nothing against david we loved working right. with david and yeah. all that stuff but it's like let's let's see what happens if we work with someone else yeah. and so we had uh, names got tossed around like what about george martin you know what about yeah. uh, you know different people and you know, right. um i think we talked about nick Lowe, and you know we just thought who do we like you know yeah. and the record company actually our a and r, a and r guy at the time mm-hmm. said he knew ed okay i think maybe working with him on a, something, right? maybe the Ramones or something. And he said, you should meet this guy. I said, okay. So they flew him out to right. San Francisco. He lived in New York uh, at the time. And um, we just hit it off like a house, yeah. or, as they say. And we've been friends ever since. And he did two albums with us. Right. And he's done one of my solo records. And like I said, mixed a couple of songs on oh. this. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah, it just, he, he got it and and it, it worked out great. We recorded in San Francisco and then um, did whatever overdubs and mixing right. in New York City, which okay. was just great for us. Is that yeah. studio called the right track on Fort on 48th, I think. And then he was living in, like around Central Park and 72nd or so. So we would walk right. up, you know, it was it was incredible. It was incredible. That's great. Yeah. I don't think I've ever asked this question to any guests before. Um, and it just made me think of it now. When you switch producers, do you have to tell the producer of the previous album that you're going a different direction? How does, how does that work out? You know, I don't remember. We must have said something to David. Right. Some, okay. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I don't remember. Um, yeah, I, I don't know the answer. Okay. Right. Okay. I mean, I mean, I take it hard though, right? I mean, because it's, it's, then it's business, right? You know, I don't know. You okay. Know, it's, yeah. <laughs> when you're in it, you're sort of like, oh, we'll do this. You know? Right. It's 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 really in retrospect that you kind of go, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why did you decide to make the third album it's like a self-titled album? 
I think it was sort of a statement because what we had done was leading up to that album, yeah. I was living in this really cool flat in San Francisco at that point. I wasn't in the flop house anymore. Right. Um, uh, with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And so we were um, living there and Bob, or the other uh, guitar player, writer and translator would come over and I had this little room in the, in the flat where we'd write yeah. and I would have written a song and he'd come in with two songs and I'd go, oh, so I better write a couple more. It was a great creative competition yeah. collaboration thing. And we wrote a couple of songs together and worked out demos on my TAC four track in that little room and <clears throat> then bring them to the band. And it was a really creative period. And it just felt like, you know, I think we thought about a couple of titles for the album. Right. And we just thought, let's just call it Translator. Because this is yeah. so where we were at that moment. We wanted to just right. be, this is, a, this is like a, 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 a snapshot of where we are right now. Yeah. I'm always just curious, you know, how like fans decide on albums, you can go the Chicago route, just do Chicago 1 through 20, yeah. whatever they have, and just, or just, you know, change them up or a line from a song. I was just always yeah. curious about I wish that we had a different album cover originally. The, okay. That album cover, I really like. It has these flowers on it. Yeah. So, great photographer took the took the picture um and um we had this whole elaborate thing and we had this mm -hmm. artist involved yeah. it was gonna have little doors that opened up and like an advent calendar kind of and right um, you know and the record company was sort of like well yeah we'll we'll, we'll pay for it but like, we got to see it you know so <laughs> and what happened was i was like okay well your deadline is you know let's just say march 2nd just picking a date right and it was like, and it's, you know, February 12th. Uh, do you, we're gonna have this? Oh yeah, so we called the artist. Oh yeah, uh, so we looked at it and it was like still sketched out. And it's like, yeah. you, this has to be finished. You don't right. understand this. So we, we couldn't use it. Uh -huh. And and so um, we had to kind of scramble. And this San Francisco photographer who we knew said, well, this, and it was like, oh, that's perfect. Cause it was, a little bit of a rebirth kind of feeling and so flowers and so oh, that's great yeah. it worked out perfectly yeah 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 and then the fourth album also you know harvest another another good album too stony gates of time i think it's my favorite song off, off that album yeah yeah um then you guys took a, took a break or i didn't hear much from you guys or you we broke up uh, yeah we did a final gig in right. uh, july of 87 i think and in San Francisco, big gig, which it's funny, I just found the, a really good recording of it. And I don't know, something with that someday, but it's, it's, yeah. it's really good. We played for like two hours. Mm -hmm. And um, so we broke up and it was like, okay, right. see ya. I moved to Los Angeles. Okay. Um, you know, people moved and did, started doing their own thing. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure why we broke up. We okay. just sort of I think the wind came out of the sails a little bit. Right. We were like, no, I'm trying to get it. <laughs> and um, then, I, I, like I said, I moved to Los Angeles and I put a little band together in LA to play my kind of current songs. And right. it was okay. Not great. It was okay. My, then I, I have tapes of that stuff and the songs were clearly, whoa, what do I do? It was very much like when the present tense, my first band broke okay. up. And I was kind of like, what the fuck do I do now? right what do i do and i was like wait because i only knew how to play music i was only a translator i was like what, do, what do i do and um so in 93 i think it was i'd written <clears throat> a, a bunch of songs and put this little band together and went to san francisco and did a gig okay. and at the club that we were playing Bob, the other guitar player, and Larry Decker, the bass, our bass player from Translator, were in the audience. Okay. I told the band, I said, look, I'm going to have them come up and play yeah. a couple. We haven't played together in years. They're going to come up and play a couple of songs. Right. Sure. sure. We can go get a beer. Are you kidding? That sounds great. <laughs> right. <And> so um, <laughs> yeah. uh, they came up and played. Uh, we played These Old Days, which is on Evening of the Harvest. Right. And... Um, I think everywhere that I'm not, and maybe Dizzy Miss Lizzie or something that we yeah. could just sort of yeah. play. And the three of us kind of looked at each other and went, oh shit, 
Here we go again. Because <laughs> the other band was fine, but yeah. once they played, it was like, whoa. Rogue. Okay. So Dave Sheff was living in Nashville at that time. He had moved there. Yeah. And we called him and said, look, I think I had moved back. I was about to move back to San Francisco or something. And they were already there. And I said, right. something's happening. You, you should at least come here and let's play and see if, if there's life from this old dog, you know, or whatever. Right. Yeah. And so um, he said, okay, really? Okay. So he came yeah. to San Francisco and we got a rehearsal studio or something. And I had a bunch of songs and we worked out some stuff and it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Great. So we made a demo tape of that stuff. And a friend of ours was working at Epic Records and uh, we had a big showcase in, right. kind of in San Francisco. And weirdly, all the people from LA, the label people were going to come up yeah. to see us. So, oh, they're back together. Sure. Like the day or two before our gig, there was a big earthquake in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. Okay. Like, I, we're not going anywhere. My house just fell down, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, so we were like, oh, great. <clears throat> and we did a great gig. And even though that record didn't come out until later, Omnivore Recordings put out a bunch of those songs, but in 2015, but that wasn't part of the plan. That just happened later on. Right. But yeah, so we had a bunch of songs and did a bunch of shows and essentially played South by Southwest you know and put our toe back in the water and got in and played some really good shows and yeah um and that's kind of where it is now with translator every about four or five years yeah we get together and do <clears throat> at least la and san francisco sold out shows and it's really yeah. fun and people love right. it um i think we'll probably do more okay. you know i mean yeah we're all involved in our own things now right but, um, um i could see doing more translator stuff that's a whole mindset though. that's that's like that's a whole thing right. it's like getting the four of you with free time together it's i'm sure it's difficult yeah logistically yeah just just that yeah but then you got to be in a certain headspace and right because you're going to do it you want to you want to be present and really do it right yeah. you know yeah before that night when you brought the two of them up were you all of you like on speaking terms you guys were you know all still friendly it wasn't like a... yeah. well, we were all on speaking terms yeah we didn't see each other because i didn't right. even live in san francisco anymore yeah um, and there was no, there were no, um, you know, no social media and no, right. uh, yeah. I don't, there weren't any cell phones yet, you know, so right. um, it was, you know, we would talk every once in a while, I guess, yeah. but there was, and I'd go to San Francisco sometimes just to kind of visit because I had friends there, right? probably get a drink or something, but it wasn't, uh, there was no animosity, but there was also, there was a distance that I think we all kind of needed. Yeah, a little break. <laughs> And then once we that that event happened in '93 at that show, it was uh, just like oh oh it was a hiatus. We yeah. no break. turns out it was a ten year hiatus or whatever it was. Right. So then, like after '93, it took you still quite some time to release your first solo album, right? It did. I, yeah. I didn't release my first solo album until '99. Right. Um, and I don't know. I think I was a little confused about how to do that, what to do. And I worked with my friend, Marvin Etzioni, who was in Lone Justice. Okay. And, um, a solo artist in his own right <clears throat> and produced a bunch of people and very, very close friend of mine to this day. Mm. And I had a bunch of songs and I said, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what, what, what to do. He said, well, let's go in the studio and see what happens. Right. So, I, so I'd, I'd gone to the studio once before. I'd put a little band together with um, uh, Dave and a guy named Ben Eastwood, who had been in a band called The Uptones in San Francisco. And we put a little trio together for a while. Mm -hmm. this, this was between Translator Breaking Up and my first solo album okay. called Blow Up. And we did some really cool stuff. It was a really, really good trio. And Steve Berlin from Los Lobos, another mm -hmm. old friend, produced a demo that we had done. And someday I should put that stuff out. Right, really good. Um, so that had happened, but then uh, I hadn't really done any anything except written songs. Yeah. I didn't know what to do because I didn't have a record company behind me. Right. Or, I didn't know how to, what to do. So Marvin said, "Let's just go in the studio, see what happens." And 
we booked the studio and Dave played drums and actually Larry played bass. It was, so it was a translator rhythm section. Right. And um, on most of the songs. And we did it live in the studio for the most part. And it became an album called The Boy Who Rode His Bike Around the World, right. which I really like. Yeah. I don't know if anybody, you know, not that many people heard it, but it's, I think it's a really good, yeah. I call it experimental pop record. Right. And, um, a little bit of everything at the time. And yeah, but it was it, it was a little wait until I put out my first solo record. Yeah, no, that album's good. It's on Spotify, and you want to check it out. It's 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 just really good. Well, yeah, to all your fab listeners, all my stuff's on Spotify, so you can. You know, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, what are your thoughts like on streaming and, and stuff like that? I mean, it's it's probably a double-edged sword, I'd imagine, for artists. Yeah. Well, it. I mean, financially, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Uh, creatively, I think it's great, and you know, I I like. Um, you know. I am a firm believer that you have to live in the present. And I think it serves, doesn't serve me, I'll put it that way, to go, yeah, but in the 80s, it was not, it's like, you know what, it's not the 80s. And I mean, I stream music. I listen to people's music streaming. Do I buy it afterwards? I usually, if there's something I really like, yes, I do. Yeah. do I care if someone doesn't? Well, you know, it's nice if they do because you get, you know, your pittance for it. But you know, that that's fine. I, this is where we are right now. Right. And my friend Marvin, who produced the record I just talked about, um, told me a story, and I'll tell you this very briefly about kind of about this, an interview, and I'm paraphrasing that he right. had read with the great Japanese filmmaker Kurosawa. Yeah. Um, where they had asked him, this was probably during the video home video yeah. days, like Maestro, you know, how do you feel about people watching your movie off this thing right. on their TV set? And so he said, yes. and his answer was, I make my movies for the big screen. Hmm. Period. Yeah. What happens after that? I don't care. Essentially, it's like hmm. I've made the movie I want to make. Right. People are going to do whatever they're going to do. I made what I'm going to make. And that's kind of how I feel about records. I want to make, I think it all comes down to the record. Right. I mean, if it's a, if it's a shitty record, I don't care if it's streaming or you have to go to the record store. It's not yeah. a good record for, you know, in, in whoever is judging that for themselves. Yeah. You know, so I get that people want to stream music now. And, you know, it's kind of the post Napster thing where everybody thinks everything's free. Of course. And, you know, it costs money to make them. It costs money to tour. Yeah. And I get the argument that they're all, but you're all rich rock stars and you'll make right. your money for merchandise. Yeah. That's fine. You know, but it's, it's the era we, era we live in and I'm fine with it. Yeah. I mean, even like last year with no one toured. So okay. you, artists aren't making money that way. So, no. and, you know, no. and they have those virtual, you know, concerts they throw on Facebook and, you know, get donations yeah. here and there, but it's not the same. You know, and it's like, yeah, you, you feel bad for the art. You don't feel bad for the Taylor Swifts and whatever, but you feel bad for the artists, you know, like yourself and all the other ones who work hard. And, you know, it, it's a real shame. Now they have to work even harder just to recoup what they didn't make last year. Yeah, right. You know, it, it's uh, it, like you say, it's a double-edged sword because there's right. great things about there's so much music available. Like if yeah. I want a new Taylor Swift album, I can just listen to it on Spotify and right. you know, if I can hear the new incredible you know nick cave uh, you know album i can yeah. listen to it on spotify and it's i pay the monthly fee so i get the higher resolution you know file so it sounds yeah, decent, yeah. You know? right um is it vinyl no but it sounds it sounds decent you know? yeah right i mean it's it's just i mean uh, i know artists now release vinyl you know but it's more of like a niche thing now than it was you know distributed like you know mainstream yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it definitely has a market. Yeah. You know, like I can, as an indie artist, if you're, you know, don't have a record company behind you, it's not yeah. not cheap to put out vinyl. No. Right. You know, you'd have to sell it for, at a really high, you know, cost to recoup. Yeah. So it's not a money making venture. Right. And it seems like now they're double the price than they were when they were, you know, widely distributed. So it's. Right. Part of that, yeah. Yeah manufacture them so it's like well i gotta make some money back you know? right exactly yeah i just end up going to like you know antique stores and get them for like a couple bucks the old ones you know it brings back memories that ones i used to have yeah 
Do you remember where you were the first time you heard uh, everywhere that I'm not on the radio? Um, I would have been in San Francisco and it would have been on definitely on KUSF, right. the college station. I don't remember like the cinematic moment of we were in the right. car, pulled over and said, oh, yeah. my God. but um, I'm sure that's where I would, would have heard it first. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What about like an interesting place? Have you had like any of those experiences where it came on and you were like um, somewhere you wouldn't expect to be? Nova yeah. Scotia? <laughs> yeah, when I was in Nova Scotia, no, there was a cafe, uh, like a, you know, a coffee house near where I was living in Los Angeles before I moved to Portland. Right. Really cool cafe that ended up closing down and I was really bummed out because it was a great place. Yeah. And, but anyway, when it was open, I could walk there from my house and I walked in one day this was a really cool place. I right. liked it. And there was this, and the barista behind the counter, you know, she had like a nose ring and her ear things and tattoos, yeah. you know, everything. And she was kind of the sullen, you know, but but I went in there almost every day. So she's like, yeah. hey. And um, I was standing there, I ordered my coffee and I could hear on the sound system, she must've had Spotify or something on right. or whatever it was in, yeah. I don't know, those days if that was there yet, but some sort of a, streaming right. or an iPod or something. And I said, huh, that's me. And it was everywhere. <laughs> she said, yeah, no way. And I said, I said, yeah, I got my coffee for free. Oh, nice. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that, was, that was nicely unexpected. That's happened a few times. I've been in places and yeah, it's not always that song, but it's usually that song. Right. But then I've been like, oh, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of cool. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Right. Well, the new album is um, out now. Love and Destruction. It's, it's Love and Destruction. Yep. Yeah. And it's right now it's streaming and downloading uh, only, but there will be CDs for people who still mm -hmm. want CDs. Right. And um, I don't know about vinyl, but there will be mm -hmm. certainly uh, there will be CDs as a physical thing, probably within within the month. Right. But, um, yeah, it is available. Check it out, please. I, I really, really like this record a lot. Yeah, that's it's it's really good. And uh yeah, one more question. Uh did you um ever get like approached or the band to get on like those eighties like retro concerts at all? No. And it's funny, we a couple of years ago, a few years ago, we thought we should get on one of those things. Yeah. You know, we know a lot of people who've done it. Right. You know, like I know the Bangles and I know um uh you know other people who have who have yeah. done that. And it's besides, I'm sure it's really fun. It's also, you know, fairly lucrative. Right. So, um, we thought, well, why don't we, I mean, all these other bands are doing it, you know, the yeah. fix and, you know, Berlin. Right. why can't translator come out and do it? Yeah. And um, we haven't done it. That's something we'll, you know, we should probably look into. Not that yeah. I want to go on a cruise anytime soon, but <laughs> it doesn't have to be a cruise, I suppose, you know. Yeah. It'd have to be uh, our man, definitely. Yeah. But, yeah. but I do like, I, anytime it's kind of a package thing, I think it's good for an yeah. audience. You know, I think that, that um, like we've done some stuff. They did a 415 Records reunion thing about five years ago. Okay. Us, Wire Train, and Romeo Void. Oh, nice. It went nuts. It right. On LA only, but people went crazy. Yeah. There was someone who came in from London. Oh, wow. For the show. He said, I came in for this. I said, oh, my God. So, you know, I like it when, when there's you know a reason for people to go out and you know right. people what they want is i think a good a good thing yeah so and everyone's going to want to go out soon so that'll be a oh, pretty high demand yeah indeed so i'm looking forward to being out there promoting this record and all my other stuff absolutely steve i appreciate your time today oh absolutely And a special thanks to Steve for joining me today. Check out his website, stevebartonmusic.com. Love and Destruction's out now. You can check it out on the streaming sites, as well as Translator's Music. It's really good. They are much more than just everywhere that I'm not. And if you have a guest suggestion, hit me up on Twitter at thefirstnoll19, or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. The show can be found on SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, wherever podcasts can be found. A new episode comes out every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then.